This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Accenture overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xE plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability, the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xE inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Hello, I'm Alex Hughes, and this is the Instant Genius Podcast, a bite-sized masterclass from the BBC Science Focus magazine. The term placebo gets thrown around a lot, whether that's thanks to its role in studies or simply its almost miraculous ability to fix health problems without any intervention. But what is causing the placebo effect? And is it something that we can utilise? We spoke to Jeremy Howick to find out more. He's a philosopher and medical researcher, as well as the author of the new book, The Power of Placebos. So it's a term that we throw around a lot, a phrase that we use quite regularly. But when we're talking about the placebo effect, what is it that we're actually talking about? And I guess, how common is it as an occurrence? The placebo effect, not the placebo treatment, the placebo effect is part of the effect of almost every medical treatment. So it's actually very common. Another question is, how powerful is it? How big is the effect? That's a different question. But if you just don't require that it be a large effect, it's part of any, whenever it gets a painkiller from the doctor, antidepressants, post-operative morphine, most treatments people get a surgery. The placebo effect is part of the effect of the overall treatment. So it's almost ubiquitous. And how long is it that we've known about it? Is this something that we've known about for a short period of time or is this going back centuries now? The use of the word predates its use in medical context. It was from the Vespers sung after people died in the Middle Ages. They used to sing placebo domine in regione vivorum, may the Lord be pleased in the land of the living. And people came from far and wide after these funerals to celebrate and sing placebo. The placebo, they used to call the placebo psalm. And some people, of course, only had tenuous connections to the person who was dead. They came for the free meal afterwards, and they were insincere. So they'd insincerely sing placebo, 
And Chaucer called them, you know, flatterers and devil's chaplains singing placebo without having any connection to the person who had sadly passed away. So that's what the root comes from, is I shall please. And the root, in terms of people singing it deceptively back then, also comes now people's belief. It's a false belief now, the belief that placebos require deception to have their effects. Yeah, that was something I was going to ask, is that when we're looking inside the brain, what is it that's actually happening when we experience it? Because I often equate it with this idea of being false and, you know, you're being tricked into having that feeling, but is it not always that? No. When people respond to a placebo, so first of all, placebos are offered deceptively in the context of randomized trials, but it's ethical because you might enroll in a trial of a new drug compared to a placebo, and they'll tell you, you might get the drug or you might get the placebo. You don't know which is which, so you think that it might be a real drug, which is partly deceptive at least. And then there are some early anecdotes. So I'll tell you one where a colleague of mine was a a junior doctor in a London hospital 35 years ago. And there was a patient of hers who was demanding morphine for pain, but they didn't meet the criteria for morphine because you shouldn't give morphine to someone who doesn't meet the criteria for it. And I was insisting on it becoming very unpleasant. My junior doctor colleague went to see her more senior colleague who said, ah, I know just the thing to do. The woman asked about her symptoms, and he said, I have just the treatment for you. It's a special new experimental treatment. Went back and came back with in pincers, a large tablet and a glass of water, dumped the tablet into the water. It fizzed up, dissolved. He said, drink this very slowly. She felt much better. But my junior doctor colleague knew it was just, it was just effervescent vitamin C. This is an example of deceptive placebos outside the context of clinical trials. But now we know you don't need to deceive people for placebos to have their effects. A real example, a woman, Linda Buonono, she had such bad irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS. She couldn't leave the house for weeks. She enrolled in a trial run by some fantastic Harvard researchers, including my colleague, Ted Kapcha, of what's called honest placebos, where they told her, here's a placebo pill, which is like a sugar pill, has no active ingredients in it, but might work due to mind-body self-healing mechanisms. Now, it worked so well for her, she was able to resume a normal life for the first time in years. At the end of the trial, though they took the placebos away, the normal placebos, didn't take them away, they ran out. She went to the pharmacist to ask for some placebos. They said, no, I can't give you these, they're unethical. Hmm. And there's dozens of trials. I've reviewed these. Honest placebos can work. And the reason is, it does work via cognitive mechanisms. Sometimes your subconscious believes it might work despite what your conscious mind says. And by definition, you're not in control of your subconscious thoughts. So if you go to see a trusted doctor who tells you this might work, doesn't lie to you, say it will, it might work. And you've had positive previous experiences of going to the hospital and getting better or taking a pill and getting better. These previous experience, what you've learned, what your brain, what your body's learned about taking medication and engaging with the healthcare profession can lead to a positive response in the same way that a deceptive placebo can lead to a positive response. So if we were to utilize placebo and take it into the real world, I mean, like right at the start, you mentioned about there's a big difference between placebo effect and placebo as a tool. And if we were to take it into this real world, I assume we'd have to focus on these, I guess, more ethical versions of placebo for it to be accepted and to be given out to people. Absolutely. So there's two things to separate. One is placebos, one is placebo effects. I'll talk about the more controversial one too. When can placebo pills, for example, because you can also have placebo surgery, when can placebo pills or placebo surgery be ethical? The answer is they've got to be honest, first of all. If you talk about honest placebos, there's no ethical objection anymore. 
There's no, because you're not deceiving people. And here's an example. There's an ongoing trial right now, as we're speaking, where post-operative patients are offered a combination of real morphine and placebos. They're told, hey, instead of giving you just morphine pills after your operation to treat your pain, we're going to give a mix of real morphine and placebo pills. The good thing about this is that it has almost the same pain-killing effect, almost indistinguishable, but the chances of becoming dependent on morphine are greatly reduced. So that's an example. But then if you move to placebo effects, which is part of all treatments, so if someone gives you out a painkiller, if you have a headache or a back pain, here's a treatment for your headache or back pain, they should do everything they would do to enhance the placebo effect of a real placebo, namely empathic and positive communication, which is responsible for the response to real placebos, they should add those. But because people don't focus on it, they think, now this is fluffy, esoteric, soft stuff. They don't focus on it, but there's hard science for it. And placebos and placebo effects, therefore, have been studied more than any other treatment in the history of medicine. So I would say it's unethical for doctors not to induce placebo effects to the best of their ability. Mm. Just as it's unethical not to help them with another treatment to the best of their ability. And in some cases, like post-operative pain, the best option is an open label or mix of open label slash honest placebos with real drugs. And you touched on just that, the idea of a placebo surgery. Could you go into that a little bit more? Yeah. So I'll tell you a, a true story. There was a, a, a guy in Boston. He had a, a fracture in one of his vertebrae. So a fracture means a, a breaking, obviously. And the common treatment for certain spinal fractures is vertebroplasty which means they take a big needle, inject some glue, cement, and glue it together. He did the procedure. He came back three weeks later for a checkup to see, and the doctor who did the procedure realized he had injected the wrong vertebra, and it still worked. He said, whoa, this is crazy. So then he did a placebo-controlled trial where he would take some people with the vertebral fractures, randomize them to get the real vertebroplasty, the real injection. Otherwise, just get the needle stuck in. Nothing came out. Just needle stuck in, blank needle, placebo. The placebo worked just as well. So why shouldn't that become the standard treatment? Why don't they just call that minimally invasive surgery? Because of course, the placebo surgery that just says stick the needle has almost no side effects, certainly way fewer side effects than the real vertebroplasty because the glue can leak and so on. So if you want a cure for your vertebral fracture that has a same chance of success, but lower risks, you got to go with the so-called placebo surgery. Now I've called it placebo surgery in this conversation just now, but in my book, I argue it shouldn't be called placebo surgery because it's not the same as let's say a sugar pill where the sugar in the pill has no effect whatsoever. Whereas the needle poke penetrating the skin does induce a physiological reaction, no matter what you have subconscious or conscious beliefs are, called the wound healing cascade, which leads to more blood, more tissue, uh, white blood cells, et cetera, to heal it. But nonetheless, we don't get bogged down in terminology. Some people still want to call it placebo surgery. But just for the record, it shouldn't be called placebo surgery. They should call it minimally invasive surgery, which works via self-healing mechanisms. They could explain it that way to the patients. And given it has the same benefits, less harms, it's crazy not to. I think I'd go for it. You know, it doesn't work. Sure, give me the cement after, but I, I'd try that first. So I guess there is that argument of placebo being maybe the first choice. And then if someone does that and they find that there is no success there, there is still the surgery possible to them afterwards. Yeah. In general, though, you want to go with the treatment with the best balance of benefit and harms. Sometimes in the case of 
this so-called sham surgery, you have benefit-harm ratio is better. There's another, other examples of so-called placebo surgery for knee arthroscopy, where, you know, they see the damage in the knee, the, the meniscus is torn and so on, and they do something called lavage, so they put them, clean it up, and it, it seems to work for many people. But a famous surgeon in Houston called Bruce Molsey, he was a, a surgeon for the Houston Rockets in the, in the U.S. in that area. Everyone would have seen him sitting on, alongside the, the team on TV the way, you know, here in the, in the U.K., the Manchester United team would be some of the, the physio might be known. They're sitting along there with the players. Half the people got real arthroscopy, half got sham, just they made the incision and sewed it back up. They thought they got the real one. Worked just as well, even over a long period. And these people have had serious knee pain. It was so bad, they didn't respond to maximal drug therapy for at least several months. So it's not a trivial effect size. The evidence suggests that the less invasive so-called sham surgery is as effective but with fewer harms. So go for it. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store. Like now. Go! Three great words. Free Fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Valid one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 12-31-24. Excludes tax. Must update rewards. So opposite the placebo effect is this idea of the nocebo effect. Yeah. Where, you know, inactive treatments, can, they can worsen symptoms due to the negative expectations of it. Yeah. Is this an area that... I guess is studied just as much, or is this maybe a little bit more of a side thing that comes alongside of it? The research is growing, but it's all but ignored. So people think it's okay to tell the truth in any way I want. So you're giving a paracetamol because you had a headache. By the way, just go read all the side effects. It costs 50p at wherever you want to buy it. If you read all the side effects, you wouldn't touch this stuff. Bleeding, nausea, all this stuff. So sometimes in clinical trials, potential participants are force-fed these negative things that might happen to them, this can actually cause the negative things to happen. But before I tell you the data there, the boring numbers, true story, 29-year-old builder jumped down from a platform, landed on a 15-centimeter nail that penetrated his boots from the bottom up. He went to the doctor. They couldn't even move the nail. They had to give him fentanyl. It's very strong painkillers to be able to remove the nail. And this is a 20-year-old a builder, you know, probably generally tough people. And they end up giving him fentanyl, removing the nail slowly, took off his boot. Turns out the nail had gone between his toes. It hadn't penetrated his skin, but he, he believed that it was painful. So it, it was painful. The pain is subjective partly. So, and this experience is dramatic, but there are many less dramatic examples. So in my data, I studied 250,000 people, all of whom received placebos in clinical trials, and half of them reported at least one side effect. But the sugar pill didn't cause the side effect. What caused it? Well, it wasn't all nocebo, first of all. It's a bit more complex in the following way. If anyone were to ask you or I, if we have you know, any symptoms of anything, you know, do you have any nausea, any headache, any back pain every day for three weeks or five weeks or six weeks, sometimes we're going to say yes. 
if we're in a clinical trial, our symptoms, headache, back pain, could be attributed to the trial drug, in this case, a placebo. But to rule that out, we did a deeper analysis that I, I won't bore anyone with, but they can, they're happy to, to read the paper. We also looked at what happened in the, those trials if there was a no treatment group. In other words, there's no question of misattribution because you control for that. And about one third of these side effects in people taking placebos are nocebo effects. Telling patients about what the bad things that might happen is good. What we're saying is you got to tell them in the right way and balance it with correct information about the potential benefits to not create this fear. Statistically, there's a 33% chance that you'll feel some sensation in your tummy area if I just tell you the last thing you ate causes mild nausea. One or three people in your situation will, will report some sensations. And that's without me kind of having a white coat on and saying it very seriously and giving you some you know, Latin terms to make it sound scarier and so on. So where you've sort of spoken about this idea that when people experience placebo effect, it's very much influenced by what's going on in your head and the way that things have been, I guess, fed to you or explained. For people who, let's say, don't have as much trust in the effectiveness of medicine and maybe have a preference for natural alternatives, is there any, I guess, correlation between those kind of people and the effects of placebo? Do they tend to fall off because of that lack of trust? Good question. The placebo community has been seeking to identify characteristics of people who are more likely to be responders. And most of my colleagues, they're usually better educated, think, oh no, following for that was tricks or way beneath me. But that's not the case. There's no correlation between IQ, and, it seems, and education. And again, it's because of our prior experiences that if the drug companies could predict who would respond to placebos, they'd rule them out of the trials. Because if the drug effect is the drug effect versus the placebo effect. If you can reduce the placebo effect, you'll have a bigger drug effect. So it's in their interest. They got a lot of money and they haven't figured it out either. The proof they've not figured it out is they have what's called placebo run-in periods before trials. Before they do the trial of the drug versus placebo, they'll give everyone a placebo for a few weeks and see who responds to the placebo and rules them up. That's empirical. That's not based on any kind of test to see if you are naive or not naive or have a PhD or went to Oxford or Cambridge. None of that stuff seems to make a big difference. When we've spoken about the surgeries and I guess the pills as well, we're talking about this in, I guess, the first period afterwards. But for example, someone who had a placebo surgery on their spine, does that tend to work long term where someone, you know, months, years down the line is still feeling the success of placebo surgeries? Great question. And there's two answers to it. First of all, not all drugs have long-term effects either. I mean, if you think about ibuprofen pill, it lasts a few hours. So we shouldn't expect that placebo effects last longer than drug effects. In these trials, follow-up is six months and a year. So it's long-term follow-up. So they, they can work for an extended period of time. And if we, I guess, began to understand the underlying neural basis of the placebo effect or the placebo itself. They do. They do. They understand it. So is that something that we could then develop, I guess, something like brain-computer interfaces to directly activate that? Or have we been able to target it and give that push that you can activate it without any kind of intervention? Great question. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer. In theory, there's no reason why you couldn't. Mm. And they have done some fascinating studies on placebo mechanisms. So the placebo has been studied most frequently, but not exclusively in the context of pain. And the way they discovered the mechanism for pain placebo effects is they gave a bunch of people placebo who had pain, 
but some of them they gave naloxone, which is an opioid antagonist. It prevents the action of opioids. And those to whom who had received naloxone did not experience placebo effects, which showed, and that's been replicated, that showed that the placebo works by activating the body's endogenous opioid system. So endorph, the word endorphin just means endogenous opiates or endogenous morphine, morphine that your body makes by itself. And for this conversation, we've been talking about placebo very much in the aspects of medicine and surgery and health, which obviously makes sense is where it's uh, the research is based. But how much does placebo apply to other areas? I mean, for example, if you were able to induce the placebo effect when you're talking about skills or exercise or something like that. If you move away from the narrow conceptualization of placebo pills to kind of placebo effects, you don't need placebo pills to have placebo effects. And a seminal study in that area was in Italy, post-operative patients were connected to an IV line and only half of them were told they were receiving a powerful painkiller to reduce their pain. And those who were told needed much less morphine to reduce their pain. So you're saying, how does this work outside the skills? To me, it's clear. So it's a positive message, essentially. A positive message from someone you trust who delivers it in an empathic way. So I call positive empathic messages what accounts for placebo effects. And that's what I focus on in my current role. We're changing the medical school curriculum so that empathy is at the heart of what the future doctors learn. So exercise, let's say, you know, what, what sport do you do, Alex? I climb, I run. Yeah, so you, you, what, what's your best 5K time? I've not done 5Ks in a long time. Uh, 25? Yeah, so what if I told you, you know what? I've just been studying, I've been watching you run. You can do 2430. Hmm. Just me saying that can lead to you doing 2430. And the proof is Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. They thought it was humanly impossible for a human to break the four-minute mile. They thought it was a kind of a natural limit, like the speed of light or something. So his coach didn't even tell him what he was trying to coach him to do. Then he broke the four-minute mile at the Ifley track in Oxford. Then within a few months, 13 other people broke the four-minute mile because the mental barrier had been cracked down. You can exaggerate it. You know, people think positive thinking. Oh, yeah, if I have positive thinking, all of a sudden I'm going to have a billion pounds in the next week. And so that's, that's just BS, frankly, but because people don't really believe it and it's unrealistic. But before anybody does something, by definition almost, they've thought about it. They visualize in some way they can do it. Like before someone walked on the moon, someone thought about walking on the moon. Things happen in our minds before they happen in reality. And to catalyze that passage from the mind to reality, someone we trust saying, yes, you can do this. Certainly, I think that everyone you speak to would have a personal experience to relate that shows that to be the case. I mean, there is also this idea that I think quite a lot of people aspire to is the uh, affirmation of the self. And I wonder if that plays into placebo as well, if you're doing it to yourself. Yeah, because self-placebo, that, that's an area I'm very interested in because that has a wide application. And there are some trials. It's a nascent area. Let's say you want to put yourself in a better mood. What do you do? Do you give yourself empathic, positive messages? That's all part of it, I think. I think, for example, people have dogs. We treat our dogs better than ourselves. I mean, my dog used to kind of open the peanut butter thing and eat the peanut butter. I'd get upset for a, a few seconds, then it'd be forgotten. But if we make a mistake, we can remember for 10, 15, 20 years, even have therapy for a long time, because we can kind of forgive ourselves. You can't change anything in the past. You can be a better person now and forget about it. So I think that the same things that we tell doctors to do to enhance placebo effects, we can and should do to ourselves, and it has an effect. What I recommend to people, individuals who want to enhance 
placebo effects is the easiest way is to just stop the negative stuff. So we have our brakes on. People have studied how many thoughts we have in our heads and they can't count them because it's hard to distinguish sometimes. There's a little blurry line. So what is one discrete thought? It's hard to isolate, but there's tens of thousands in a day. No one disputes there are many, many of them. We're not in control of them. And they're mostly negative, unfortunately. I should have done this. I should have done that. Or I don't like this person. I don't like that person. To get out of that space, the fastest thing to do is altruism. Do a random act of kindness. Just say something nice to someone, and that takes you out of the negative frame of mind, the nocebo area, into the placebo area. Then you can move to positive thinking. But the move to positive is difficult because people don't believe it. I don't really believe I can do 50 push-ups. They don't really believe it, so saying it becomes dissonant. Mm. Just move into neutral by doing a random act of kindness. Take yourself out of the space, and you're doing something nice for somebody. So in your research writing for your book and i mean your research in your whole career yeah what's been the thing that's really struck out to you about the placebo placebo effect the whole industry three things one is it's not just for so-called psychological things the placebo surgery or so-called placebo surgery works for mechanical things secondly honest placebos work that was surprising to me third of all I thought, because I've always been interested in taking this research from within the walls of academia to outside the real world. And the main argument in the book is that it's time for placebo researchers to stop doing research on the mechanisms. We already know how it works. Get out there. Let's get this knowledge out there for people to benefit from. So when we do that, we teach doctors to offer more empathy to patients, because this is one of the reasons why the sugar pill might work. And I thought that the side effect would be that doctors would become burned out. If I'm too empathic to everybody all the time, I'm going to feel burned out. In fact, the opposite is true. The more empathy that doctors offer, the more they try to elicit placebo effects, if you want to call them that, the better their well-being is. We don't know fully, but the reasons can be summarized by what Viktor Frankl said. Viktor Frankl, of course, was tortured in the Nazi war camps, and he claims to have found his ultimate freedom. And he said, if you have a why to live, you can deal with almost any how. So when doctors are trying to help patients, they really see, you know, you're making a patient happier, healthier, instead of just focusing on the tests and protocols and so on, which is important too. But when you're focusing on and observing and connecting to the healing of the patient, this creates resilience, enables you to deal with the difficult job you have as a doctor, because it is hard being a healthcare practitioner. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was Jeremy Howick talking about placebos. The Instant Genius podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as on your preferred app store. Alternatively, you can come and find us online at sciencefocus.com. 